people have been working on the revolution for a long, long time. Um, uh, hi, this is Laura Hedlund. I'm a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person excited that uh, this is the year of Seward Co-op's 50th anniversary. And Food Freedom Radio is very grateful for Seward's co-op um, support over all the years. Um, and um, we're very grateful today to also be sharing the story of how the co-ops got started, and because um, it's been both a very um, inspirational story, um, even a little magical, um, and also with some drama. And so there was something called the Co-op Wars. And so we're going to be talking about the Co-op Wars. Later in the show, um, uh, Seward Co-op, uh, Kara uh, Barr, the marketing manager from Seward Co- Community Co-op, is going to be joining us and talking about their 50th anniversary and um, their different activities and um, how to join, how to be a member, um, what does the future look like for Seward Co-op. But right now we're turning to Eric Essie, and he did produce the program, uh, The Co-op Wars. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, uh, so tell us, this Co-op War is a movie, and it's actually, people can watch this movie for free on uh, Twin Cities Public Television. Yeah, yeah, it's on the PBS app, if you have uh, Roku or something like that, and then also you can go to the tpt.org uh, website and uh, find us under the Co-op Wars. Cool. And so, why did you make this movie? Uh, why? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us about I made this because, yes, yes. Um, yes. So a while ago, back in 2005 and six, I was the marketing director at North Country Co-op, which was a co-op on the West Bank of Minneapolis, the first of the natural food uh, co-ops uh, founded in 1971. And I was in charge of the uh, 35th anniversary events we were having. And so I was learning more about the history and came across a book called Storefront Revolution by Craig Cox, which was about the history of the co-ops in, uh, in North Country in particular. And it was a lot about this incident in 1975 and 76 called the Co-op Wars, um, which I was amazed there was such a thing. And I was fascinated by the um, by the events and it stuck in the back of my head as a project that, that could happen to uh, let more people know about this. And so later on, when I worked at Film North, I met Deacon Warner, uh, who was a documentary director, and we decided to make it a project of ours. And we've been doing that for much of the last eight years, and we're so glad it's coming out now and we can share this story. Um, we're, I was most uh, inspired by it because I got to learn the history of how the co-ops sprang into existence, the food co-ops, in a very short period of time with people with very little experience, making this this amazing movement that you know yielded this incredible co-op uh, seen we have in the Twin Cities, right. the best and in the country. And now it has so yeah. much impact. And it is a very, um, I, I really encourage people to go um, watch this movie because it's it's a very, it's a, it's a feel good, it's inspirational. But let's, so let's, we're going to play um, a little clip right now um, about the start of the, the co-op and, and how it started. So um, Brad, if you would play that clip. The West Bank seemed like the perfect place to start their new food experiment. They just needed the proper venue. Diane Zostek and Alvin Oderman, poor things, <laughs> let, let us set up on their porch. We had learned where to buy food and stuff like that. Honey and whole wheat flour and brown rice. Sesame seeds, peanuts. The people's pantry. We were open maybe Tuesday, Thursday. In six months, we had $5,000 of inventory. 
So we started out, you know, in our naive state, just figuring different people would volunteer to watch. And my sister Vicky watched it a lot. Keith watched it. I watched it. And Diane and Alvin <laughs> watched it. My, um, my husband was uh, selling marijuana at the time, too. And <laughs> we'd be totally stoned sitting in the living room, and somebody would walk right into the house and say, it's an emergency. My grandma needs brown rice. And finally, they got tired of it for very good reason. That was when I said, we want our $50 back, and we don't want to have people coming over all the time. In the meantime, we uh, went to the People Center. They ended up moving this People's Pantry, as it was called, into the People Center. So um, so um, uh, I'm going to bring you back here, Eric, because that, that is a story I'd actually not heard, uh, that this started by the, the wonderful co-op scene, started because somebody um, opened their porch and bought some extra uh, brown rice and stuff and said, here's a Petra, pe- uh, people's pantry, come to my house. And I mean, it, it, it had such a, um organic start. Yeah, yeah. So a few young people who had met at, like, at a commune and, and went to this, uh, San Francisco and saw some other examples of something like this and just decided this to go do it. And that's what the, the amazing spirit people had, uh, these young people had of just, just because they didn't know anything about it and just because it's never done, done before doesn't mean that they're just not going to do it right now and just try stuff. And the spirit of, of experimentation and, and possibility is really refreshing to, to hear about and of course in this case it was really rewarded too because there was this unmet demand for whole foods for bulk foods for even whole wheat bread that it's hard for someone today to even imagine that that was the case i mean i was born in 1970 and so even someone of my age it's hard to re- remember the fact that that you know whole wheat bread was hard to find and Broccoli was sort of exotic, and, and all these things you take for granted now just weren't available in your conventional supermarket. And uh, so when uh, these kids set up their, their little stores or pseudo stores, that there was suddenly a huge demand. And the idea of buying in bulk to save money and was also important. Yeah, hugely important. That was that was the basis of the, the co-op selection at the beginning. Um there really was no packaged natural foods that didn't exist as a category. Um, and at first, it wasn't even about, you know, produce, which is the thing that people think about with, with natural foods these days most. It's about bulk food and people with, a, you know, time on their hands to do elaborate cooking projects and really interested in, in uh, having a, a low-cash uh, lifestyle so they can have uh, freedom – of in other ways of their time that yeah that low cash lifestyle that's um <clears throat> uh and it was about it was about um um ownership of the economy mm-hmm. and and not participating yeah, yeah. in the dominant system but creating the system that actually speaks to our heart yeah yeah and it's a really interesting combination of very uh practical uh a very practical approach of fulfilling their immediate needs to get you know bulk food, for instance, and then this larger political uh, mentality that we can we don't this corporate economy is just not serving us at all, 
and we're going to do whatever we can to set up alternate systems. So they did that with, with their food stores, but also there were a bunch of other different types of co-ops. Um, and there was a bunch of informal uh, uh, so, cooperative. Yeah, you know, they were like uh, making clothes like, and making your own um, uh, yogurts and all, all sorts of really fun activities were going on. We're going to go more into that. But I'm going to play a clip yeah. right now on the start of North Country Co-op. Small grocery store. While not originally part of the plan for People's Pantry, the idea of forming the new store as a cooperative was immediately popular. We were having uh, these meetings for opening the co-op, and, you know, there were like 100 people would come to the meetings. It came through. Uh, We we got to to go in there. People were excited about it. People were down there uh, volunteering, getting the store ready. We had a board of directors election. And I think everybody paid $2 to join. The store opened and we just picked up all of these barrels of whole grains and things that the People's Pantry was doing and moved them right into the new co-op. And so People's Pantry and the co-op merged into what became known as North Country Co-op. So in six months, we were doing $2,000 of business each day. That's as much as supermarkets were doing. Huge sales. The place was packed. I mean, it was so packed you couldn't move around in there. People were just lined up, and they came from all over because they couldn't get it. So, so um, Eric, Essie, um, talk more about those those early days of North Country Co-op. I mean, that's such an incredible story. It really is. I mean, from a, just a business perspective, you're selling $2,000 of food a day, but it was just people all getting together and... Um, just sort of forging this whole new path of buying food um, directly from each other and being very as careful about the sourcing as they could. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. You know, a lot of the the people putting this together were in their early twenties uh, and met through the university or through the anti-war movement, and um, didn't have any experience in anything like this, but just sort of figured out where to get the stuff. Um, and brought it in and you know there's a lot of volunteers a lot of people working for a dollar an hour um and a few people who were like the diehards who really you know organized things and then hundreds of people who sort of moved through as volunteers and temporary people and this groundswell of community community to make it happen um you know and and like like it said there the the fact that it was formerly a co-op was sort of an afterthought it was you know a community uh endeavor and uh, and so they use the co-op uh, uh, idea to to embody that. And uh, for from a legal perspective, there's a lot of novel ideas that came out of this time too. There wasn't really structures for this. It wasn't as understood. I mean, obviously there were the larger co-ops like Land of Lakes and. Yeah, well, these co-ops are really helped by the fact that there was this co-op history in in Minnesota. And the whole region here, in some some parts of the country, there's really none of that. But here, because of there were there were previous waves of co-ops in the 30s and the 20s and the 1890s and, and before, there were legal structures in place, and there were some older um, cooperative uh, business people and act- activists who could be consulted. Although there wasn't much interaction between those two groups at, at the beginning, 
Um, but then these co-ops often were set up without really legal structure and they weren't even legally co-ops and sometimes their books were very haphazard. Yeah. And, so uh, we're going to take, we're going to take a break yeah. right now. And, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk and, and go more into the, the co-op wars and what happened and, um, and, uh, we'll be talking more. So thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and uh, I'm Laura Headland, and right now we're playing music from the closing credits of the Co-op Wars. Um, and um, with us is the producer of that movie, Eric Essie. Um, Eric, I absolutely love the music that that's, uh, was included in this film, The Co-op Wars. Do you want to talk about the music a little bit? Sure thing. Uh, one of the really uh, w- wonderful things that happened was we talked to uh, Willie Murphy, uh, Minnesota and, and West Bank, Minneapolis, especially a music legend. Um, and he was around during that time period and, and sort of was like the, I don't know, the, the uh, house band of the co-op movement, it seems like <laughs> at the time. And he allowed us to use his, his music. And, and during our production, fortunately, he passed away. Um, but uh, we got to use a lot of his songs and it really, really sets the tone. Of, of what it felt like uh, during the time period, and we're really excited that we have his songs in there. Yeah, so I mean, the start in the co-op was uh, somebody started it, uh, put some food on their pantry. They had pantry. They they actually started in the front porch, um, and it grew to a business that was doing two thousand dollars a day in food, and then it grew even larger than that. Um, talk a little bit about that early growth in the seventies. Sure. So that was 1971 that North Country started. And um, there's a anecdote that uh, that Dean Zimmerman, one of the founders, uh, uh, stood up one day when it was crowded and told everyone, if, if the line's too long, go start your own co-op. And that was the spirit. And, and within a couple of years, there was around uh, 15 or 20 co-ops all over the place in the Twin Cities. Um, this little tiny... Uh, Stores started in the neighborhoods, and the, with the idea that maybe every single neighborhood neighborhood should have a little co-op in it. And so that was, you know, these are small stores, but amazing growth just in a few years. Um, and you know, yeah, and I, I personally yeah. remember that I grew up in uh, Northeast Minneapolis, and there was the time that you had a lot of corner grocery stores. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that was something else that was happening at the same time of the 70s is that the corner independent small grocery stores were being pushed out by the chain stores. Um, but I remember, you know, being the small one on 22nd and Johnson. I mean, that, that was, that, that, that was the idea. And then there was incredible networks of being able to distribute food and it was just all happening in a, um, in, in a really, um, effective and joyful way. Yeah, that was one of the first things that uh, one of the things I, I hadn't known about was sort of the, the luck that all these corner stores are going out of business, and so all these uh, storefronts and coolers and equipment were available for these uh, young people to start their co-ops with. So they they took advantage of that shift in the market to create a, a new little system for themselves. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about um, the beginnings of what's what's called the co-op war. So what is the what was the co-op war? 
So the Co-op Wars is uh, like the nickname for a period of from the spring of 1975 until the summer of 76, where uh, conflicts over what the co-op should be about came to, came to a head in a way that, that became actually violent eventually. From the beginning, there was not a unified idea about what the co-ops should be for. You know, bulk foods is obviously a focus, and whole foods was a focus. But the question of how much is this about food purity or natural food versus cheap food was an issue. Um, and how much was it, how much were they political organs versus business organs was an issue as well. And the fact that they were started by mostly, you know, college kids with very left wing leanings meant that these college kids had a critique of their own movement that it wasn't working class enough and it wasn't serving uh, poor people and oppressed people enough. And so how you resolve all that was an ongoing issue. And this got taken advantage of by a um, small group that started um, by a guy from out of town named Theophilus Smith, who started the Marxist study group where they were reading Mao and Stalin and deciding that they needed to start a revolutionary organization. And that the first thing that organization should do is um, take over and direct the co-ops in a more revolutionary working-class direction. So I'm going to play another. And, uh, I'm going to play another clip from the movie, and mm-hmm. um, just so I mean, um, the the some of the movie focuses on the relationship between Susie and Keith. They have a two-year-old kid. And they were actually living in a teepees, but then they built a nice house. Mm-hmm. And Keith kind of <laughs> did a little reading group, and he went one way, and and Susie went another. Um, but there was also, um, and there was also this um, starting of another uh, co-op, um, uh, the building of the Bryant Central Co-op. So this one mm-hmm. group tried to help with that. So. Brett, let's play that clip again, or play that clip. Outreach to the community. But in the predominantly African-American, central, and Bryant neighborhoods, they found someone with the community credibility they needed. Mo Burton, a former Black Panther and neighborhood activist, had already organized a successful community garden when he was contacted by the CO. We got approached by uh, some folks that said, hey, what about starting a co-op? And we started building a co-op right there on that same block on 34th and 4th Avenue that later became Bryant Central, the co-op organization. And they were very secretive. At the beginning, it was a good relationship, very helpful. They were volunteering, helping to build the co-op. They were always in conversation with Mo. They basically were training us, so a bunch of us went out to various co-ops and worked. Uh, But it was really people who lived right in that community that were actually on the board and controlled the co-op. The CO helped start Bryant's. This is one group. So one group was the CO, and they were active, and they helped start it. Um, But then what happened? Uh, Do you want to fill us into what happened after that, Eric? Sure, sure. Yeah, the the Marxist study group you mentioned transformed itself into or called itself the co-op organization of the CO. And so they were agitating for a a more working-class revolutionary uh, orientation to the co-ops, and they were helping out uh, Bryant Central. Uh, to start, Bryant's is one of, I believe, just two um, um, black-led co-ops amongst the groups that sort of had a different focus because it was it was less college student-oriented. And when the CEO would make their arguments, um, unfortunately for for them, in a very uh, dogmatic uh, way, 
that implied that anyone who disagreed with them was an enemy of the revolution and not a real a radical and that only the CEO had legitimacy because they were a disciplined revolutionary organization and thus everyone should uh, do what they say. And that didn't go down very well, um, even even though they, had, they did have a lot of support um, amongst uh, the workers in the co-ops for this idea that they should be more overtly political and try to serve the working class more. Um, so, but when people wouldn't sort of turn the co-ops over to them, the CEO decided to to uh, go the way of their of their uh, heroes, uh, um, Lenin and Stalin, and just take over. And so they took over the People's Warehouse, um, which served all the co-ops. And then when people uh, just started their own warehouse uh, uh, as an alternative to that, uh, they started trying taking taking over co-ops by force. And so they tried to take over the Bryant Central Co-op and failed, and they briefly took over Seward Co-op. And they made other attempts at Mill City Co-op and Powderhorn Co-op and a bunch of them where they actually just tried to physically come in and, and take over. And um, so this led to some minor violence and uh, and a lot of conflict. And eventually the, the CEO lost because they alienated people so much by their by their tactics. But they really followed the model that they were revolutionaries and that and that they picked the the food co-ops as their first target for revolution. And so um, like with the uh, Bryant uh, Central co-op and that, that was featured the Gary Cunningham, which is right now, I mean, mm-hmm. he's doing some really cool work, Gary Cunningham. Um, uh, but his his uncle, Mo Burton, was involved in the uh, building the Bryant Central co-op and he actually had his vehicle burned as part of yeah, during yeah. that time. And his car firebombed, that was probably the most dramatic thing um, that happened during the, the crop wars that his uh, telephone wires got things like that. So real, you know, intimidation and on some level, I think they picked on him in that the, the whole justification for the CO um, taking leadership was that they were the true representatives of the working class and people of color. And, but they actually, as a group weren't any particular, weren't particularly working class and didn't have many people of color in them. And so their justification was, well, we have this Marxist-Leninist dogma, and that makes us the leaders of the working class. Now, when you got Mo Burton, a legitimate um, black working class leader, um, objecting to what they do and not, and not doing what they say, that, that was really a, a blow to their image. So I think they went after him first, because they, if they could say they had the Bryant Central Co-op, they could show themselves to be legitimate leaders of, of the black community and the working class. And uh, unfortunately for them, the, that co-op, Mo and that co-op had no interest in, in becoming uh, foot soldiers for the CO. So um, this group actually called the CO actually physically takes over a People's Warehouse. And it was actually violent um, and it was a very confusing time. So we're going to play a clip from the movie now. So after two or three days, the CO announced that the warehouse has been transformed and opened up again. And what did that mean? Like everything else, the CEO said, what did anything mean? We gathered on Monday morning, and he said, we have to keep going. We have to get food. we got people that want food. Instead of going back in and violently taking it back over. Came up with a name and incorporated, and we came up with dance, which was the Distributing Alliance of the North Country with a little teeny E that was for etc. so that we can say dance. 
and of course they call the so, thing. So, Eric, um, what a what a wonderful story. Um, in in a way, um, tell us more about that time. Yeah. So when the CEO took over the People's Warehouse, people who didn't approve of the CEO needed uh, to get food from somewhere, and so just like they had started the People's Warehouse out of nowhere, they started dance. Um, this immediately and started delivering food to um, those co-ops that didn't want to buy from the CO. And so it really showed the um, the limits of the, the CO ideology where they're basically trying to reenact communist movements around the country, around the world, taking over governments. But you can't just take over a food warehouse and expect everyone to keep buying from you. So that was a big flaw in their, in their strategy. Uh, people could just go somewhere else and start something new. And so that's what they did. And so that, that was a, you know, incredibly resourceful, uh, resourceful of, the, of those people and, um, really handicapped the, the CEO's attempt to taking things over. Um, and the other thing that people found at that point was that the people's warehouse wasn't organized as a cooperative. A lot of these, um, um, stores and, and warehouses were very ad hoc and didn't have their paperwork together. And so it was really hard to figure out when someone tried to take them over who owned them. And so you had these takeovers happen and the police come and say, okay, who's the owner? And everyone says that they're the owner and, and, <laughs> and it's all thrown into confusion. So this really, uh, led the co-ops to get their houses in order and actually become uh, legally, um, organized cooperatives. Right. And I, I was talking to someone that actually, um, and there was a university of Minnesota law class about the co-op wars. Um, cause it was a, a novel concepts. I mean, um, and, um, and I also know that teaching co-op law, some people are, you know, we need to have co-op law as part of a business law. Um, mm-hmm. and so, um, reflect, we have just about a minute left. Reflect on your final observations after doing that movie and, and, and what you feel about, uh, the co-op movement and its impact in creating the world that our heart, I think, really sings to. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're from the Twin Cities and haven't lived other places, you might not realize what an amazing natural foods and cooperative sector exists there. It's, there's nothing like anywhere else in the country, and it supports hundreds of organic farmers in the region. And, and so we should be grateful for that and also be really thankful for the people who helped start it because they had no idea that it would turn out that way. Um, and also it makes me reflect upon uh, social movements in general and how these uh, divisions keep on happening. And we should learn from that, um, learn not to be too dogmatic and learn to realize that um, people's egos get in the way and they often will, uh, like the CEO, frame their self-interest in, in most idealistic terms. Um, and that that's something to always keep a watch for, because even if we're a bunch of idealists, we have, our, have the same sort of need to control and, and dominate sometimes. And uh, we need to keep a uh, track of that and uh, keep being uh, open to each other and transparent um, in order to make social movements actually work. Great. Well, you know, I thank you so much for your time, Eric Essay, the producer of the Co-op Wars. And again, uh, people can watch that for free. Um, you simply go to uh, TPT, TwinCitiesPublicTelevision.org and slash Co-op Wars. Um, and we're going to take a break and we'll come back. We're going to talk with Seward Co-op about their 50th anniversary.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person excited for Seward Co-op's 50th anniversary. And uh, welcoming, uh, welcome out now to Kara uh, uh, Barr, the marketing manager for Seward Co-op. So 50 years, how cool is that? Yeah, it's great. It's a big milestone, and we're really excited to celebrate that throughout 2022. Um, our next event is going to be our 21st annual CSA Fair, which is going to be Saturday, April 23rd from 11 to 2 um, in the Seward Co-op Creamery parking lot, which is where our cafe used to be and where our administrative offices are housed. So that's at 2601 East Franklin Avenue. And so um, a CSA is Community Supported Agriculture, and this is um, this means buying and knowing your farmer. Yeah. Buying food directly. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no. I, I mean, the, I mean, in some ways, I mean, like one of the questions is how co-ops are so different than grocery stores. It's like, okay, I'm having a CSA fair for my competitors who also sell the same things I sell, but it's more than that, right? It's because food is a community. Exactly. So, yeah, we've been really showing our commitment to local growers for the past twenty-two. CSA fairs. Um, and really, it's an opportunity to connect consumers with people who grow our food. And the idea is to really, like the idea of a CSA is to help farmers with their cash flow. So consumers will connect with a small scale farmer and invest in their upcoming growing season so that farmers can better prepare what they're going to grow, have money to buy seeds, pay their workers um, in the lead up to the harvest season, which is very short here in Minnesota. But what our CSA fair really does too is, like I said, connect the consumers with farmers and just create a really great space to connect, build community, um, and share ideas and just talk about some of the issues that farmers face and some of the issues that consumers face and think about how together we're going to build a resilient local food system. Yeah, and that together. Now, um, I'm gonna we're going to talk a little bit about the history again. So um, Seward Co-op um, opened the doors in 1972, and that was a time when food prices were skyrocketing. Inflation was a real, real concern, and faith in government was at a low point. Civil rights issues were at the forefront, um, and the world seemed uh, fragile, alienating. Um, and people responded to that alienation that they were feeling by creating the co-op movement. Yeah. So really what we see in the co-op wars film is that the movement was really fueled by these idealistic youth. And um, I think a lot of the people in the film reflected that as long as you were volunteering or maybe if you volunteered like 20 or so hours a week before you knew it, you were one of the coordinators. So you were in charge of running the store or buying the product on the shelf. Um, and things like that. So it's really interesting to kind of think about how that rolled into this phenomenon that was really successful. And I don't think really anyone was necessarily expecting. I'm going to play a clip from uh, Dean, Dean Zimmerman on the start of uh, the co-ops, uh, start of Seward co-op specifically. One day, a guy came walking into North Country, and he said, uh, I hear you guys might be interested in buying some coolers. 
Well, what do you got? Well, I got this little store over there on Franklin Avenue. And we walked in. I went into the place. I looked around. I says, whoa, how much do you want for the whole building? We ended up renting the building, buying his coolers from him, spent about a week fixing the place up a little bit, and it was already a growing grocery store. So we just opened it up for business. Seward Co-op. So, so isn't that fun? I mean, no I, I just, I just love that. I mean, this guy has a cooler to sell, and just happens to talk to somebody, and fifty years later, look what happened. What resulted right. from that 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 one meeting? Right. You know, I think that's just kind of how this whole thing unfolded. Um, one thing that I want to point out that um, you can see when you watch that clip is that. Seward Co-op's name actually had three O's in Co-op. If you if you notice that, mm-hmm. and one of the reason or the reason behind that is because it wasn't legally incorporated as a Co-op. There was a Minnesota statute that prohibited the use of the word cooperative by businesses unless they were legally incorporated as one. Um, so the original co-op founders added an extra O to the original name. And that's just a little fun tidbit from history of that time that I wanted to share um, with folks because it is very interesting. It is. Um, And a lot of the co-ops, the early on co-ops during this new wave that were springing up in the twin cities um, really were just kind of disorganized and, um, we're really just trying to make good food available for everyday people and run the business through community ownership and experiment with what democratic control looks like in a business. So, yeah, this was a really inspiring time, and it's really fun to see 50 years later um, where we're at because, yeah, in that original store, a lot of the product was merchandised in garbage cans or stacked up on the floor. And people were even allowed to ring themselves up. So there was a lot of trust that people weren't stealing from the organization or anything like that. It was really volunteer-led and had a lot of trust among community members. So it's a really fascinating story. Yeah, those spirits of the, of the early days. So how does that spirit um, live today? So how does, because of that spirit 50 years ago, how is shopping at the co-op today different than maybe shopping at a big box store? Sure. Well, you know, the co-op model as a whole, you can ask yourself a few questions. It's like, who owns the co-op? Who does it serve? And who profits? And in the case of a consumer co-op, our co-op is owned by the consumers to benefit the community of owners who own it and who profits. Again, it's the community. Um, in profitable years, one of the benefits of being an owner is a patronage refund. So we'll take 80% of those profits and reinvest it into the business to keep the spaces vibrant and sunny and cheerful and welcoming to everyone. And then distribute back to the owners proportionate to their usage, um, the extra 20% that's left over. That's one way. And then also um, you get a say in who who runs the co-op. So each year we hold a board of director elections. All owners 
can um, run for the board of directors. They can vote for the board of directors and attend our annual owner meeting. So that's a big plus, too. Um, so there's financial incentives and then there's incentives that really relate to the community, the the. So- I mean, the association of owners. Right. So, of course, everyone's welcome. You do not have to be an owner to ever shop at a co-op. You don't have to be one. But if you want to be an owner, what does that mean? How do you be an owner of it? Right. Thanks for asking. That's a good question. Um, so what you do is you actually purchase a stock in the co-op. So that costs $75. And like I said, that gets you a vote for the board of directors. That gets you... Um, able to be on the board of directors and it also provides um, a socially responsible investment in your community so you can purchase that one share or that one stock of $75 but it also opens up opportunities to invest in other ways too so you can buy what's called class c stock um, and you can also take out owner loans in certain scenarios um, when we have a capitalization campaign going. So it's a socially, it's a way to socially responsibly invest in your community. And, you know, I just want to touch on one of the biggest differences between the co-op business model and conventional grocery stores is that we keep money in the community. Um, we really provide an alternative to the capitalist system that's really extractive so like our profits will always stay in the community as opposed to being shipped off to some ceo that lives in another state or even another country so that or even another you, planet and not just yeah <laughs> right i'm just joking I'm right. sorry, that was kind of a joke about a different one that's kind of like spending a lot of money on some other stuff. But yeah, that's saving money because I know I uh, like there's statistics. Almost, every time you spend a dollar locally, you actually generate a lot more money locally. And it creates a whole different economic system when we make those individual choices. Exactly. And then one of the other things that the impact of Seward Co-op is community foods or what used to be called P6. So talk about that. Yeah, so we have a steward co-op labeling program called uh, Community Foods. And the purpose of that program is to really amplify or uplift the products that align most closely with cooperative values. Um, and in order to be considered a community food producer, you need to meet two of the five attributes. So you need to be small scale, locally based, um, cooperatively owned, inclusively run, and or sustainable. So um, if you meet two of those criteria, you'll, you can get a community food um, designation at our shelf. And I also know uh, we want to talk a little bit about the Nourish program and keeping food affordable and some um, ideas and suggestions on that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, – was reflected in the discussion that we hosted with the co-op boards was that there's been this conversation around the real cost of food for 30 or 40 years. And that is really continuing even today. So one way that we kind of get at that question is through our nourish program and what it is, is designed to um, feed a family of four healthfully and affordably at the co-op. So, it's a four-pronged program, and we have a needs-based ownership. We have free nourished classes. 
We have recipes in the store. And when it's not a pandemic, we have sampling as well. Um, so there's a whole host of resources on our website at sewer.coop slash recipes. And you can search for meals that'll feed a family of four for $10 if they're vegetarian or $15 if they include a meat protein. So it's a really great way to really stretch your dollar at the co-op and therefore help fuel some of the great work that we're able to do in the community. And one of the best ways to um, uh, reduce the budget, because inflation's hitting our food budget and it's causing some stress again, obviously for some people or for a lot of us. Right. And um, But learning to shop from the bulk and learning to use those bulk ingredients can really save money. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great, great, great um, option for a lot of people. The nice thing about it is it's not only sustainable because it has less packaging, but it you can purchase exactly what you need. So if you only need a cup of rice for a recipe or a cup of flour, um, you don't have to buy a whole five pound bag or something like that. You can get as little or as much as you need. And keeping the food fresher that way too, like even your beans, oh, you're yeah. buying a little bit at a time and, and your choice. Um, and so um, I really want to get back to down those, both the spirit of the early days and how to carry that forward into the future. Because um, when I was at the co-op, I, I just, I, I actually started to feel hopeful again. And it's been, there's, I'm, you know, it's just been again, so much negativity out there. And it's like, this can-do spirit that lives and that was so alive in that movie, The Co-op Wars, you know, you get hit down and you find something to come back up with. And so, sure, do you, do you feel like that, that that spirit of the early movement can keep growing? Yeah, totally. And I see a lot of similarities between what folks in the film and what folks that I work with say. Um, the co-op is still a place where you can go to gain leadership skills, um, particularly if you come from a marginalized community. If you're a woman, if you're a black person, um, you can find work at the co-op. You can find jobs that will give you skills um, to build your business, um, your business skills and expertise and become trained to do other things um, that you want to do. Um you know, together as a community, we have a really powerful seed roundup program that benefits different nonprofits in the community that are really working on issues that will help us in turn to really realize our mission to sustain a healthy community. So um, we round up for places like the Sabathany Food Shelf that has really deep roots in the Bryant Central neighborhood. Um, we round up for open arms that gives food so to people Kara, with Kara disabilities. Brown, we're going we're gonna to need to say goodbye. I want to talk some more. I'm really thank Co-op, uh, Seward Co-op. And um, when we're leaving, we're going to play a clip from the movie with Annie Young. And I, I know the movie was partly dedicated to Annie Young, and I worked with yeah. her a little bit. So I'm, I'm just going to play that clip and some of the music from the movie. That vision, I think some of us still really believe that it could be such a better world. It really could be a better world. I think co-ops are... Uh, at the cutting edge of where we could be and that they have not seen their time has not passed. It's just beginning. The time is just beginning. Thank so you so much for listening to Food Freedom Radio. The time.